Let's send a message to our friends running the Congress these days. Stop running around for Trump and start running the country. Well said. Message not received. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Fairmont, West Virginia, on WEFR. Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. So the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com, now celebrating 20 years of troublemaking and muckraking. Welcome to the Bradcast. Glad to have you with us. All right, as we go to air, some uh, breaking news. We don't know too much about this so far, but apparently shots were fired at the end of the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl Super Bowl victory parade mm-hmm. and rally in downtown Kansas City, Missouri on Wednesday. One person is said to be dead as we go to air. As many as 15 people may have been injured, five seriously so, according to police. Two people are in custody. Officials say they do not believe the motive of the shooting was terrorism, whatever that may actually mean. But really, that's about all we know at this hour. So we'll uh, keep our eyes on this story as it moves ahead. And, of course, sending our best to everyone in my old home state of Missouri and, of course, those uh, from Kansas as well who may have been attending the rally. Some uh, brighter news, however, today, at least for Democrats on Tuesday. We'll get to that in a moment. And since the investigation of the 2020 election and Donald Trump's failed attempt to steal it will apparently never end in American history. Well, we've got some in-depth reporting this week from investigative journalist Josh Kavensky of Talking Point's memo on a trove of documents that he recently obtained from then-Team Trump attorney Ken Chesbro, often known as Cheesebro, though his name is actually pronounced Chesbro. I have been <laughs> disappointed to learn. Yes, me too. <clears throat> Hi, Desi Doyne. Hi. 
Chesbro is the guy who first came up with the fake electors scheme, apparently, in his own home state of Wisconsin. A plot that was apparently so admired by the attorneys at Trump HQ that Chesbro was eventually welcomed into the interlegal sanctum to help carry out that same scheme and a whole bunch of other swing states as well, and to come up with the legal or extra-legal uh, and or constitutional or extra-constitutional plans to try and force not a physical insurrection at the U.S. Capitol necessarily, so much as a legal one. Legal chaos that we now know, thanks to Josh's reporting, was meant as a, as a Hail Mary scheme to try and prevent anyone but the U.S. Supreme Court from ultimately deciding the winner of the 2020 election, just as they did for Republican candidate George W. Bush back in 2000. Uh, Josh will join us shortly to explain what we now know, what new details we've learned about the attempted legal coup based on his newly revealed tranche of emails and texts and other documents turned over by Chesbro to prosecutors who have charged some of those so-called fake Trump electors with crimes, serious ones, all thanks to, well, Chesbro's scheming, which Kavinsky is detailing this week in an investigative series at TPM. He will be with us shortly. But before all of that, the U.S. House voted on Tuesday to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas with the Republican majority pretending as if they are trying to punish the Biden administration for its handling of the U.S.-Mexico border or something. It was a uh, mulligan attempt, a second attempt to adopt articles of impeachment after they failed to do so last week in a politically disastrous setback when, while trying to impeach a sitting cabinet member for the first time in U.S. history, they fell shy of the votes needed to do so, thanks to both three Republican defectors and one Democrat who showed up in his hospital scrubs after uh, going through emergency surgery. The roll call vote on Tuesday evening, however, uh, shortly after we got off air, was another tight vote with GOP House Speaker Mike Johnson and his uh, threadbare majority in the House unable to handle many defectors or absences in the face of unified Democratic opposition to impeaching Mayorkas, the first cabinet secretary facing charges in nearly 150 years, the last guy who did so had resigned just before the articles were uh, were adopted. In his case, however, they were actual crimes. Actual corruption, unlike with Secretary Mayorkas, where the Republicans have not been able to produce any evidence of any actual wrongdoing. The GOP-controlled uh, House ultimately on Tuesday, were they were able to vote successfully to impeach Mayorkas by one single vote. The tally was 214 to 213 with the return of Majority Leader Steve Scalise. He was away for uh, cancer treatments uh, and... They also had to deal with a nor'easter storm that was impact, impacting uh, other lawmakers. But Republicans got the vote this time around, despite dissent once again from three within their own ranks for the debasement of constitutional impeachment now being used as a partisan political tool, apparently, 
or as a revenge impeachment, or however you may wish to categorize it. The three Republican members who broke ranks last week uh, did so again this week. They are all very conservative themselves, including Ken Buck of Colorado, Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, and Tom McClintock of California. But uh, the Republican majority in the House is quite small, 219 to 212. At least that's what it was on Tuesday. So Johnson had very few votes to spare and yet pulled it off eventually by one single vote. President Joe Biden called it a, quote, blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship that has targeted an honorable public servant in order to play petty political games. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, a constitutional scholar himself, said, uh, quote, what the Republicans have succeeded in doing is degrading and tarnishing the constitutional meaning of impeachment. The charges, such as they are charges at all against Mayorkas, uh, now go to the Senate for a trial. But neither Democratic nor Republican senators appear to uh, be particularly interested in the matter, and they may indefinitely shelve it to a committee, according to AP. We'll see once articles of impeachment are officially delivered to the Senate, as I understand it, all business in the Senate is supposed to stop until the Senate has a trial and a vote. Uh, That, despite the virtual impossibility that two-thirds of the U.S. Senate would vote to remove Mayorkas... But it was a frantic scene, once again, of vote tallying on the House floor on Tuesday, as AP describes the GOP effort. It took on an air, they said, of political desperation as Republicans struggled to make good on their priorities. Uh, And they were desperate, of course, because they knew if they waited just one more day to hold this vote, they were likely, well, to lose another vote Uh, as of Tuesday evening which they did. I'll get to that in a second. Mayorkas faced two articles of impeachment filed by the GOP-run Homeland Security Committee, arguing that he, quote, willfully and systematically refused to enforce existing immigration laws and that he breached the public trust by lying to Congress by saying that the border was secure. That's it. That's the high crimes and misdemeanors as required for impeachment, of an executive branch member. They didn't like the way that he was carrying out Biden's policies at the border, or at least that's what they're pretending uh, for what is really a revenge impeachment. And that, while the GOP House is right now refusing themselves to go along with a very tough border security bill that was hashed out in the Senate, a bipartisan bill that pretty much gave Republicans everything they ever claimed to have wanted on on the border. But then Donald Trump told them to kill it so he would still have something to run on in November. Guess it's not such a existential crisis or invasion after all. Border security now seems to be the only actual campaign issue that Trump has left as he recently insisted he will launch, quote, the largest domestic deportation operation in American history if he retakes the White House this fall. And he promised to build mass internment camps as well, you know, as fascist wannabe dictators do. In any event, 
Uh, had the GOP waited just a few hours more, they once again would not have had the votes to adopt their sham articles of impeachment. That, thanks to New York voters, specifically in the 3rd Congressional District, uh, the home of the seat previously held by the disgraced and expelled and criminally indicted Republican con artist George Santos. Former Democratic Congressman Tom Suozzi is now heading back to Congress after apparently easily winning the special election in New York's competitive 3rd District on Long Island in yet another special election victory for Democrats who flipped Yes, another House seat from red to blue on Tuesday, further narrowing the GOP's now just six-seat majority. Swazi's victory on Tuesday over Ethiopian-born Israeli-American Republican Mazi Pillip cuts Republicans' already razor-thin House majority by one seat, making legislating even more difficult moving forward, at least for a party unwilling to work with Democrats on behalf of the nation. The former congressman, a conservative Democrat, may have been helped by a winter storm that walloped the New York City area on Tuesday as Democrats built up an advantage in early votes before before Election Day, either by mail or early in person. You know, the kind of vote that Donald Trump had encouraged Republicans not to cast back in 2020 because he said those were all fraudulent. But with those Banked votes and the uh, snowstorm on Long Island on Election Day, at least for the first part of the day, the GOP was apparently unable to get enough votes or enough voters out to uh, catch uh, catch them up with the early voting from Democrats. President Joe Biden won the Long Island-based district by eight percentage points back in 2020, according to Daily Coast elections, but... Republicans have made gains in the area since then, and in 22, George Santos won what was an open seat by eight points at the time. Now, just uh, about two years later, a little over a year later, actually, uh, it was the Democrat who won the seat by eight points. Here's Swazi on Tuesday night. Let's send a message to our friends running the Congress these days. Stop running around for Trump and start running the country. It's time to find common ground and start delivering for the people of the United States of America. The people are watching. They want us to start working together. So our message is very clear. Either get on board or get out of the way. Do you think uh, Republicans will get on board there, Desi (laughs) Doyen? No, I have a feeling that they always seem to take the wrong lessons from all of the American people and the voters trying to shout at them, hey, stop doing what you're doing. (laughs) Knock it off. In any event, the result is a blow to the uh, Nassau County GOP. They had been energized by a string of victories uh, in recent years. Before Santos was ousted, Republicans represented every congressional district on Long Island. Well, no more. TV ads in the race focused uh, largely on immigration and abortion. 
In the uh, short special election, Swazi faced a barrage of attack ads on immigration, which Republicans see as a salient issue for voters, or at least they did. Swazi quickly answered those uh, attacks with his own TV ad, stressing support for that doomed bipartisan border deal, which Republicans uh, ob uh, objected to and Swazi's opponent, Pillip, opposed. Democratic strategist and analyst uh, Simon Rosenberg, who has been a guest on this show and has been out there for the past several years, accurately predicting Democratic gains in election after election based on data, as opposed to hand-wringing and worrying and bad polls and right-wing propaganda. He had these thoughts after Swazi's victory in New York on Tuesday night. I have this view that What's happened in the last few months is that Republican talking points against Biden are, have all started to evaporate. They were arguing for years that we were in a recession, the economy's bad. That's not true. They were arguing inflation was too high. Well, that's no longer true. They were arguing there was a crime wave all across America. We know that murder rates and crime rates are way down, even in New York City, right, uh, in, the last, uh, in, the, in the last year. And we also know that they argued there was somehow Joe Biden waged this war in energy and that war in energy had risen gas prices and made inflation go up. But we know that that's not true now either. We had more oil and renewable production last year than any year in American history. And so all they really had left of all the big issues out there, as these others evaporated, was the border and immigration. And what we've seen is that last week, they handed us a big win and fumbled it and made a huge error in the way they managed it by showing that rather than trying to solve the problem, they actually want to keep the problem open for crazy Donald Trump in his election, thinking this is somehow going to help him. And what we learned tonight is that it isn't going to help him. That being, as Tom Swazi said, being on the side of solving problems, putting America first, putting America really first, is going to trump the kind of chaotic, crazy politics the Republicans are pursuing right now. This was a huge loss for Donald Trump tonight, because the central issue in his mind, the one that he's going to win on, is border and, the, and immigration. And just to remind all of your viewers and listeners, in 2018, Donald Trump spent the last month of the election talking about the caravans and the invasion. And we won that election by eight and a half points because voters believe that while these issues are important, there are things that matter more. The economy, health care, democracy, you know, reproductive freedoms. Right. It isn't that border and the immigration issues don't matter. It's that usually they are trumped by other issues that matter more. And so last this was a huge disastrous event for any sem semblance of some kind of argument that the Republicans were going to make about if you elect them in 2024, what are they going to give you? The voters have already rejected it. And if they don't have some kind of massive reboot, which I think is impossible under Trump, I think we're looking at a very, I, I'm very optimistic about what we're going to be able to do in November because we just keep winning and they keep losing. That was Simon Rosenberg on Tuesday night, Democratic strategist, one of the, uh, one of the few that you should listen to and follow because he seems to be right election after election. We'll see if he's right this time. Uh, Democrats also leveraged the issue of abortion with outside groups launching ads featuring footage of Pillip describing herself as pro-life. But the two, uh, Swazi and Pillip, uh, could end up facing off again this November. Both candidates have committed to running for the full term. Uh, we, we will see about that as well. If so, it, it would likely be very good news for Democrats after Swazi reportedly defeated Pillip on Tuesday night by a very healthy eight points, 54 to 46. 
in a race where a record nearly $22 million was spent on this one House race alone after most polls had showed the pair was uh, that it was pretty much a toss-up with the best of the polling showing uh, Swazi up by four points ahead of Pillup. The final margin nearly doubles those four points. On Long Island's, by the way, mostly hand-marked paper ballots. So Democrats, yet again, have outperformed the polling. That's something to keep in mind as we move forward. Another very good special election night for Democrats. Add it to a list, a long list now of such nights since the Republican U.S. Supreme Court majority overturned Roe v. Wade. And as the Trump cult now known as the GOP, has become more and more chaotic and authoritarian with each and every passing day since then. So that victory now narrows the Republican House majority to uh, officially 219 to 213, a six-seat majority. But even those numbers, that six-vote gap, it's kind of uh, deceptive. Because what it really means is that Republicans cannot afford right now to lose more than two of their own votes on any legislation to the Democrats. So if they want to get anything done between now and November, for example, a budget bill to keep the government open and operating, that uh, deadline has been kicked back, I think, to next month. Well, they're either going to have to win every single vote in their caucus or they're going to have to start working with Democrats. And I also need to uh, issue a correction to an error that I believe I made earlier this week on this show when I said that this would be the last uh, special U.S. House election of the year. Actually, there's three more. Oh, wow. So I wasn't even close. <laughs> no, but still, that's more opportunities. So <clears throat> well, that's good. There are two Republican and uh, one Democratic seats that are currently vacant, uh, though neither seat is expected to flip. None of, none of the three are expected to flip uh, in those special elections in the coming months ahead. Uh, but we shall see. There are three more. If those three seats stay within the same party, it means the Democrats will need to flip just four more seats in November in order to take back control of the U.S. House next year. There was also a special election in Pennsylvania on Tuesday for an important seat in the state legislature there. Democrats retained their very slim majority in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives on Tuesday after voters elected a former school board member to, re uh, to represent them in a Philadelphia suburb. Jim Prokopiak's election to the Bucks County seat will give Democrats a 102 to 100 majority in the state house, which they have sought to defend in four special elections over the past year after initially taking over the majority uh, back in uh, 2022. Prokopiak's election now keeps that majority in place by two votes in the Commonwealth's lower chamber after a Republican lawmaker resigned last week. As our friend Daniel Nishanian, known as Taniel on Twitter, from the progressive Bolts magazine, as he tweeted on Tuesday, Democrats won tonight's legislative election in Pennsylvania in the northern suburbs of Philly by 36 points. Oh, wow. That's pretty strong. Six, I mean, I'm no math expert, but 36. 68 to 32. 
So that's 36 points they won that uh, to Biden's 10 percent margin in that same district in 2020. Once again, outperforming expectations, as has been the pattern in pretty much all of these special elections since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, even in very red states and, and, and races. And finally, before we get to a break and our guest today, lawmakers in the currently wildly gerrymandered Republican state legislature in Wisconsin voted on Tuesday to adopt new state legislative maps drawn by the Democratic governor, Tony Evers, inching the state closer to undoing the extreme gerrymander that has ensured Republican control of the state now for more than a decade the pair of votes in the Republican-dominated State Assembly and State Senate are a sign that the years-long battle over Wisconsin's legislative maps may finally be drawing to a close and giving Democrats a chance to win control of the state legislature in upcoming elections for the first time uh, since 2012. The vote in the legislature is a result of a uh, December ruling from the new liberal majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court that the current Assembly and Senate maps are unconstitutional. The court ordered new legislative maps before the 2024 elections. Republican and Democratic lawmakers and the governor and third-party groups all submitted revised maps to the court for consideration in the event that the legislature and governor do not agree on one. The uh, GOP-drawn map uh, was so such a partisan gerrymander that the independent consultants hired to advise the court said that their maps, quote, do not deserve further consideration. <laughs> the maps submitted by Democrats actually retained a Republican advantage, according to the consultants, but to a much reduced degree. By accepting Evers' maps now, Republicans avoid the uh, rolling the dice on a court-drawn map that could be less favorable to them. Wisconsin's current maps, drawn by Republicans, are among the most gerrymandered in the nation, giving the GOP huge majorities in both houses of the state legislature, holding nearly twice as many seats as Democrats in the Assembly and the Senate, even though state statewide races are often razor thin, and the Democratic governor was just reelected two years ago uh, statewide. So these new maps are expected to erase much, if not all, of that partisan advantage. The governor has said that if the legislature passes his maps, he is expected to sign that legislation. And speaking of elections and Wisconsin, that guy who came up with Donald Trump's uh, scammy fake electors scheme in 2020. Well, he's actually a Wisconsin native. Go figure. So maybe that scheme should not come as much of a surprise to us. It's also landed a whole bunch of those fake electors now in hot legal water, including up in Michigan, where more than a dozen of them are about to face felony criminal felony trial. But it's that guy from Wisconsin, 2020 Team Trump attorney Ken Chesbro, not Cheesebro, but <laughs> Chesbro, I guess, whose documents and texts and emails and more now offer new light on the planned legal coup around the 2020 election that Donald Trump lost. Those documents have now been obtained by Talking Points Memo. 
And so they and he are the focus of a special investigative series this week at the news site. And the author of that special series who obtained the documents and is, I believe, the only member of the media to have actually interviewed the cheese joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. The cheese stands alone, the cheese stands alone Hi-ho the dairy the cheese stands alone Hi-ho the dairy the cheese stands alone Yeah, well, his name is actually Chesbro, not Cheesebro, but how often do we get to play that bumper music? Welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com A Michigan Republican testified on Wednesday that the fake 2020 electors in the state were actually told that the GOP-controlled state Senate had the power to accept their their certificate incorrectly, claiming Donald Trump had won the 2020 presidential election. The testimony of James Renner of Lansing, Michigan, who was one of the 16 Michigan Republicans duped into signing the false document on December 14, 2020, was another indication that supporters of Trump were hoping that Michigan GOP lawmakers would intervene in Trump's loss to Democrat Joe Biden. According to the Detroit News Today, Renner said, quote, the purpose was to present the slate of candidates because we were told that the state representatives and senators had the ability to accept our slate of candidates versus the Democratic slate of candidates. We were told that this was an appropriate process, he said. It would be up to the state Senate to make a decision as to which one, which slate, they would select. In fact, under state law, there was no room for the Michigan Senate to choose a different slate of electors from the slate of the presidential candidate who was Michigan's certified winner. Renner has agreed to a cooperation deal with Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel's office, and through the agreement, Nessel's office dropped eight felony charges against him. The other 15 false electors in the state, however, continue to face charges of forgery and conspiracy to commit forgery, which could result in years in prison for each of them. Other fake electors in other states are now facing similar, very serious consequences for going along with what many of them believed to be a perfectly legal response to what they had been lied to about as an election that was stolen from Donald Trump. That scheme, though often attributed to the now disgraced far-right Trump attorney John Eastman, actually appears to have been hatched by a Wisconsin attorney named Kenneth Chesbro who, after suggesting the scheme as a way to create doubt about who the correct slate of electors actually were in his own closely divided home state of Wisconsin, 
Well, he was welcomed into the Trump campaign attorney fold to suggest that the same scheme should also be carried out in about seven different swing states in advance of the January 6th Electoral College certification. During the constitutionally mandated joint session of Congress, to be presided over the over by the vice president. In that case, it was Mike Pence. After being charged with felony crimes as part of the broad RICO conspiracy case filed against Donald Trump and 18 others for attempting to steal the uh, state's election in Georgia, Chesbro pleaded guilty to one felony count in that case, agreeing to cooperate with prosecutors in exchange for no jail time. He has been cooperating with prosecutors in other states where GOP operatives employed that same scheme, which he helped to hatch. In late 2020, as Talking Points Memo's Josh Kavensky writes in the introduction to his four-part investigative series published this week by TPM, a group of conservative movement attorneys set out to build a legal pathway by which Donald Trump could stay in power despite having lost the election. We've known about the outcomes of their work for three years now, Josh reports, how it led to the violence of January 6th and fed the dream of Trump's supporters that he might continue to serve somehow after January 20, 2021. But TPM can now reveal the ways in which their theorizing in early stages went even further than previously known. Imagining a January 6th that lasted for not hours, but days an intervention by Supreme Court justices that they presumed to be loyal to then-President Trump and a vice president who upended his constitutional duties, allowing the U.S. to descend into chaos. A trove of documents obtained by TPM now details many of the conversations among Trump campaign lawyers and, in particular, the theories offered by Ken Chesbro, the attorney who worked with the campaign in the months leading up to January 6. Within weeks of Trump denouncing the election itself and claiming that he had won, notes Josh Kavinsky, Chesbro and Trump campaign attorneys around him began to explore more exotic legal theories in which endless chaos in Congress for days on end would prove that the legislature could not certify a winner at all and that stalemate, they theorized, would force the U.S. Supreme Court to act. And of course, as they speculated, ultimately incorrectly, to act in their favor. Joining us now is TPM's Josh Kavensky, one of TPM's excellent investigative reporters based in New York. Josh previously worked for the Kiev Post in Ukraine, where he covered politics, business and corruption before coming back here for a much less chaotic and corrupt beat. Josh Kavinsky, thanks for joining us today on the broadcast, and congrats on this superb and enlightening investigative series, sir. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Josh, you obtained this load of documents, emails, text messages that came from Chesbro, which he gave to prosecutors in Michigan as part of the state's uh, the state AG's uh, fake electors probe. Are we to assume that... These are all the documents that he turned over. And should we assume that he actually did turn over everything that he had from his involvement with the uh, with the Trump campaign and, and what you described as an attempted legal coup by uh, Chesbro and others in Team Trump to uh, steal the 2020 election? 
Well, I think what's important to keep in mind is that after Ken Chesbro pleaded guilty in Georgia, he's now been traveling around the country trying to make sure that he doesn't get charged anywhere else again. Mm-hmm. So everything that he's giving and has given to prosecutors in Michigan, that you know, includes all the documents he wrote about, and that also includes the four and a half hour you know, interview he sat for with them, that's all as part of an effort to persuade them that he is not worthy of further criminal charges. So I, I think that you know, if you're asking about the scope of what he handed over, that is the key thing people should have in mind, is that it's going to be limited by his desire in some, uh, you know, in some sense to avoid further prosecution. And also the fact that he is an attorney who was working for the campaign in Wisconsin. And so there are going to be some things as well, which I think he would have deemed privileged and wouldn't have handed over also. So we should assume that what he turned over is the stuff that would make him look the best. Was he obligated to turn over everything he had? So there was no subpoena. And there are, but I think what's interesting about the documents is that there are a lot of things he gave, which at least to me seem to be against, against interest. So one thing that we really highlight in the uh, series is that there are a lot of situ- you know, cases, as you mentioned in the intro, where Chesborough ends up kind of coming off as more influential than maybe John Eastman was, mm-hmm. which is contrary to what the public perception was. So, you know, there are also, I think it, it, it couldn't have been only that he was giving over documents, which, you know, helped him or downplayed his involvement because, you know, there are records there where he's pitching, for example, the theory that Mike Pence could have you know, unilaterally discarded by the electoral votes weeks before John Eastman shows up. You know, mm-hmm. there's edits that he provided to the Eastman memo where Ken is sort of the one saying more clearly that Mike Pence has this authority. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the records were certain. I mean, he, there's a reason he was he's cooperating. It's to avoid further prosecution. But I don't think we can I think we'd be going too far to say that he was only, you know, handing over documents that uh, completely helped him. So the big picture, and of course we will link to the to, to the full series. There's a lot of stuff here, but since you know we're all sort of familiar with the general bones of the story, including the fake electors plot, and uh, of course uh, January sixth, the insurrection. But broadly, what did you learn from this tranche of documents that you did not actually understand or at least fully appreciate before plowing through them? So I didn't fully appreciate, um, you know, that the Trump campaign really contemplated what the period from January 6th would look like, assuming that, you know, they had succeeded in stopping the count. That was the story we led with, Brad. And what it ended up showing was that they had really started to envision what that period of delay would have looked like. It would have been, you know, hearings on voter fraud in Congress. It would have been more procedural radicalism aimed at just completely stopping a count. And it would have been basically an effort to make it appear as if the only constitutional actor that could have still, you know, resolved the situation was the Supreme Court. So I think if listeners think back to 2000, you know, there was a situation where all of a sudden it seemed that Florida could not basically resolve the election on its own. It couldn't complete the count. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court sort of swept in and was able to resolve that election for the Republicans. And, you know, it, it really seems like that is the outcome that Ken was looking for here. Um, you know, there's a separate question I would just highlight as to how influential he really was. We can see the campaign acting on a lot of his recommendations. We can see the camp, we can see him you know, coming forth with these ideas about the fake electors and the campaign then, you know, implementing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that definitely happened. And we can also see him pitching these ideas about Mike Pence and then Trump going forward. But part of the issue here is that when we get into the period after January 6th, mm-hmm. at least in terms of what Ken's proposals were, we, you know, it, it didn't work, right? It didn't happen. So we just don't really know then, you know, whether what he was pitching was listened to or whether it was, you know, really, or whether it was kind of seen as too far out there. The, uh, you, you describe uh, Chesbro as, as not particularly taken with the whole voter fraud angle that uh, Ru- 
Rudy and 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 Attorney Sidney Powell were were pushing, and and that the documents detail quote the anatomy of a legal coup, but also something else, an attempt to twist the law in order to instigate a constitutional crisis. The physical insurrection at the U.S. Capitol was not actually part of the plan, as I understand it, at least not from uh, from the attorneys like Chesbro and Eastman and. Boris Epstein and and others, right? In in fact, that kind of sort of threw a, a spoke into the legal wheels, did it not? On January sixth. Yeah, I mean, what they really wanted was a stalemate in Congress, and in that time, what they would have done was used that stalemate to draw the entire country's attention to Congress, and then use that attention to put forth more of the same, which was the, the campaigns, you know completely nonsensical theories of voter fraud. So that was the idea. And if you talk to, I think, you know, the people who were around this, what they'll say is like, yeah, I mean, the invasion of the Capitol on January 6th destroyed that plan because it did draw attention to Congress. <laughs> but the, the, you know, the, 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 there were no members of Congress there to make the case that there was voter fraud in the election. So, I mean, I, th I think you're, you're totally right about that. Um, but again, I mean, the, the way the, this, as we call it, the legal coup was meant to proceed was by halting the count. I think that's the key similarity between what the um, rioters in January 6th ended up achieving and by violent means and what the lawyers are trying to achieve just by procedural means, which is that, you know, the count would have been stopped. It would have been stopped indefinitely until potentially the Supreme Court stepped in to act and, you know, appoint Trump the winner. So there was there was the plan was that there would be so com so much confusion about who the legitimate electors were, which uh, slate the various states actually wanted, that that would be a process that went on for weeks, would then uh, bring the, uh, the, the friendly, they thought, friendly U.S. Supreme Court into the deal, and they would make a Bush v. Gore-type decision saying, well, we just think uh, this state goes to this guy, that state goes to that guy, and effectively... Name Donald Trump the president in the bargain. Well, that was the plan they were trying to effectuate, correct? Yeah, and one of the interesting things about the documents is you can kind of see these people talking themselves into it throughout. Like, you know, what you just said, it, it, that's totally accurate, but even they recognized that it was a huge Hail Mary, that like the Supreme Court, you know, throughout this period in December 2020 and early 2021, they were not giving signals that they were going to go along with this. I mean, what they were signaling was that they were completely uninterested in playing along at all with, with what the Trump campaign was offering. And not just the Supreme Court, but, you know, the entire judiciary, right? They lost dozens of cases at every level. And so, you know, you'll see these messages where they're talking to each other and, they'll sort, and the attorneys will sort of be like, but if we do this, we'll finally, you know, get, you know, ex-Supreme Court justice on our side or, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. And so, yeah, again, I mean, they're talking themselves into it, but it, it's, uh, it's, it's, and that really continues until like the eve of January 6th. I mean, there are these messages in the trove where, you know, on January 5th, Eastman goes to meet with uh, Mike Pence and his counsel to try to persuade them to, um, you know, uh, to try to persuade Pence to stop the count, mm -hmm. uh, to hold up the count. And, you know, Chesborough is just sending Eastman, like, all of these, like, law review articles, trying to persuade him that, you know, yeah, Pence has the power and eventually the Supreme Court will come in. But I think there's an interesting dynamic here where, the, the, you know, they're kind of straddling this line between being divorced, divorced enough from reality to think mm -hmm. that this might work, but also still in touch with it enough to know that uh, this is a really sort of, like, desperate, you know, bid and, 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 you know, what's interesting is that the portrait that seems to be painted here 
uh, and, and as well via other reporting on Chesbro, is that unlike, uh, for example, hard right partisan ideologue attorneys like John Eastman or Boris Epstein, uh, and certainly the other, you know, just overt Trump MAGA types like Steve Bannon and Mike Flynn, Chesbro actually comes across less as an ideologue and more like an actually, and forgive me, but legit attorney trying to essentially do whatever he could to help make the legal case for his client, even if uh, testing the very boundaries of the law along the way. Am I am I gleaning that picture correctly or am I uh, being too soft on Ken Chesbro here? <laughs> No, I think one one thing that really I mean drew him to be his kind of character initially is that he you know spent a lot of his career as a legitimate appellate attorney, right? And he went to Harvard Law. He was an assistant to Larry Tribe, this mm-hmm. very famous constitutional law professor mm-hmm. from Harvard. Um, liberal, he, liberal leaning uh, law professor. Liberal, yeah, yeah, right, correct, liberal leaning. And he mm-hmm. also, I mean, if you look at his his career in the early nineties, I mean, Ken. Also, uh, I mean, he, he basically he was on a couple of appellate cases, which ended, ended up going to the Supreme Court and ended up being influential in areas in that kind of in obscure but influential areas of appellate law. So the point is, is that he had he had the, he had at least some credentials, which allowed him to kind of go forward and make these arguments, and which made him attractive to the Trump campaign. And it, it's you know somewhat true that he you know was able to follow up with legitimate substance, mm-hmm. but uh, you know I, I'm not. I think it's really unclear whether or not he, you know, might have been as I, I, I think there's like information, there's a lot of information to suggest that he really, at the end of the day, was a partisan. He wasn't just, you know, providing candid mm-hmm. legal advice. Um, one thing I would just point out is throughout this whole time, there were people publicly and privately just kind of yelling that, you know, none of this makes any sense. You know, these legal theories haven't really been tried for 150 years, and Ken just basically dismissed all of that. You can see some of that in the messages. So, I mean, that's something I think I would draw listeners' attention to is that uh, he, he was facing massive opposition and just paid it no heed. He, he was also apparently tweeting, uh, I guess, anonymously throughout yeah. the uh, throughout the post-election battle as Badger Pundit. Uh, and I, I think that he deleted that account. But I, I believe actually following we were following some of his tweets at the time as we were reporting uh, for the broadcast. And it, it, what is it that Republicans were uh, you know, trying to do, trying to argue? He was sort of making that clear somewhat, at least in his Twitter account, as I recall. Was any of that authorized as far as you know by the trump campaign or was he sort of freelancing with that stuff i don't i don't know if it was authorized i mean it's hard to even say that anything was authorized because it just was also chaotic even mm. in the trump campaign at the time i mean if you look at the account this is kind of affecting my previous answer it's you know i mean he, he was acting as a pretty partisan conservative on that account i mean he mm. was yep. you know engaging a lot of you know i mean i think a couple of days after january 6th he has a tweet saying that like it's like a Nazi level big lie to call January 6th an insurrection, mm. right? Mm. Which regardless of whether or not you think that January 6th was an insurrection or not, I mean it's an example of rhetoric. It's just it's just inflammatory and kind mm. of unnecessary, particularly at that time. So there's that. Um, you know, Badger Pundit, it's funny. I mean the way it comes out is that throughout these messages, Ken is uploading these documents, right? These law review articles. Uh, and if you look at the account, he uploaded the law review articles from um, its an email address, which is the Badger Pundit email address, which goes back mm-hmm. to the website. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And there's also these tweets that he's uh, from the Badger Pundit account, which he's emailing to other attorneys who are working on this. And so, yeah, I mean, what you 
again, I mean, he, he does lay out the plans very clearly in this account. But I, if anything, I think that the existence of the account tends to lean more towards the interpretation of Ken as an extremely, extremely partisan actor mm. who, you know, really is guided by that more than anything else. He's been doing a very good job of disguising it. And I think, you know, yeah. sort of uh, making throughout these documents, uh, you sort of see an attorney. Oh, well, he's trying to you know, work for his client. He's trying to put forward the best argument for his client. And we didn't see him the way we saw, you know, John Eastman speaking at the rally and so forth. Do, do, do the emails and, and, and text and other input from uh, uh, Chesbro that you obtained, uh, Josh Kavinsky, actually help Trump's legal defense in one sense in that he could say, hey, look, this is what the attorneys were telling me. They could they said I could do all of this stuff. We could do all this stuff. I was just relying on, you know, what my attorneys told me. Does any of that have that effect as far as you can tell? I mean, he, he can argue that. But I think one thing which is important to keep in mind about Ken is that you know, he was not the A-team of attorneys. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, the, the Trump camp, you know, Trump was, he, he does have real lawyers who are around him. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that uh, at some point in early December, early to mid-December, they all uh, took a step back from this kind of element of what was going on. That's our understanding based off of at least the January 6th committee reporting. Some of that appears in these emails as well. So, you know, the fact is, is that he was receiving other advice apart from Ken Chesbrough uh -huh. and that, you know, it's true that there is that instance we document where Ken is in the Oval Office and sort of tells Trump, yeah, you still have a shot. But I don't think that we, but you, you, you know, you have to look at that in the aggregate, right? And the aggregate shows that a lot of many other attorneys at the time were telling President Trump, he lost the election. You have to concede, you know, there's no chance that you're going to somehow stay in office on January 20th. You actually interviewed Chesbro in uh, in 2022 as I, yeah. I believe the only member of the media that he has spoken directly to, at least on the record. W what did you learn from that conversation? And why do you think that Ch uh, Chesbro was willing to talk to you and I guess only you at that point in 2022? Surely you weren't the only member of the media to ask, Josh. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, my impression of Ken at the time was that he, uh, I, I, look, I think anytime anybody speaks to a member of the media, especially in a situation like that, it's mm -hmm. because they want to be recognized, right? I mean, it's because they feel like they have a story to tell and they want people to know about it. And that was my impression of Ken was that he, in some sense, you know, understood that he had played an influential role in this, that he had developed some of the key ideas and that that animated the Trump campaign in, you know, the final weeks before January 6th. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he wanted his story out there. I think the other thing to keep in mind was that at that time, the January 6th committee was very much in full swing. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of leaks going out about um, this period. And, you know, nobody was kind of getting a full picture, I think, of the attorney's involvement. But at that point, you know, the memos that Ken authored about the fake electors had already been released, but other information had not. And so I think for Ken, the interview was also an opportunity to try to kind of contextualize his side of the story, give an opportunity to talk about who he was. Um, and then the third point I would just make is that uh, his you know, mentor, his former mentor, Larry Tribe, uh -huh. had also launched a few tweets at that, by that point. Uh -huh. um, saying uh, that Ken was basically disavowing any association <laughs> with uh, Ken because of you know, his involvement in January, in the uh -huh. January 6th. Um, and so Ken was also, I think, motivated to reply to that. 
Did did he? You know, yeah. Did he cooperate with the? He did not cooperate with January sixth committee, did he? As far as we know. As far as we know, he uh, did not. I mean, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, you know, when mm-hmm. I spoke when I spoke to him. He I think, I think he told me that he hadn't, but mm-hmm. um, since then, maybe that maybe that changed. But I really can't address that. There's there's um sort of one major part of the January 6th puzzle, Josh, that uh, it seems to me has not really been cracked open uh, at all by either prosecutors or journalists or the or the January 6th committee. And that's sort of that's the so-called war room that was set up at the Willard Hotel uh, just a few blocks away from the White House, where folks like Steve Bannon and Michael Flynn and Giuliani uh, had reportedly camped out to strategize throughout all of this in the in the lead up to January 6th. We don't really know much about what went on in that Willard Hotel war room still. Do the uh, do the Chesbro docs documents offer any insight into that uh, that strategizing that that took place at that hotel? No, the reality is, is if they drop off on January 5th, that's the last day you have any uh, anything he provided. You know, he, Ken talks about traveling to D.C. in the documents. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he kind of, it's, I mean, it's an interesting moment because he thinks he's going to be kind of called on, particularly if these plans go into effect, to provide advice to members of Congress, maybe the White House, on how all this is going to proceed. Um, but that doesn't happen. I mean, he shows up and nobody calls him. He, he plays a minor role right. in um, conveying electoral votes from Michigan and Wisconsin, not the real ones, the fake ones, um, to members of Congress. But he, uh, you know, his, he, he's not asked to provide advice once he's in Washington. So there's nothing about the world to tell. He's, uh, it seems as though he as as though Chesbro might actually sort of slide through any real accountability for any of this, despite really being a key player, at least, you know, uh, on the legal side. He, he pleaded guilty, as we noted, to one felony charge in the in the Georgia Rico case. He agreed to cooperate in exchange for uh, jail time. And it seems like he's been on this uh, sort of cooperation tour ever since, speaking to prosecutors, I think, so far in Michigan, Nevada and Arizona. Does that seem to be where he's going in all of this, that he's, you know, sort of a a reluctant John Dean, if you will? It's a great question. I'm really not sure. I mean, he, you know, I I will say that from the interview he gave to Michigan prosecutors, Mm -hmm. it's kind of clear that he... He's, he's he's cooperating because he needs to, not because he wants to. I mean, one thing he said was that he had spent almost his entire net worth on attorney's fees. I mean, mm-hmm. I think running a multi-state criminal defense, potentially federal defense, criminal defense is not cheap. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my impression is that he's cooperating, uh, yeah, because I mean, the Trump campaign isn't really funding his defense. So he, he's doing it because he needs to, not because he wants <laughs> to. Uh, to, to. You know, the question of how deep that might go it's really unclear. You know, we know that he's, he's named as co-conspirator five in the uh, Jack Smith January 6th indictment. Whether or not he is talking to them, I have no idea. But um, I think that one thing I would, I think that's going to be interesting is Nevada. That state and their fake elector process, you know, the Trump campaign almost declined to go forward with the fake electors there mm-hmm. because it was, uh, because the state laws in the absence of a lawsuit contesting the result at the time, um, just made it really, really implausible. And even Ken in the emails is sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm really not sure if we should do this. And then when you, I think you see the messages, we didn't write about this, but it appears there is that eventually he kind of gets, you know, Rudy Giuliani and others, other higher ups kind of go forward and, uh, you know, decide mm-hmm. that the Trump campaign should go forward in Nevada and convene the fake electors. And so those fake electors were indicted last year. 
I think. And, um, you know, that case is ongoing. And as far as I understand, Ken is cooperating there. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, I think that's one that's going to be interesting to watch to see whether his cooperation bears any fruit. Josh Kravinsky, uh, several months ago, you obtained a trove of Mark Meadows's texts and reported on them in in detail in another landmark TPM series. Now you've got Ken Chesbros. Which part of this story from the, uh, I guess, from the known key players here is still uh, relatively unknown as you see it? And, and, and might we expect any more such document series from you uh, and, and from TPM in the months ahead? <laughs> well, we'll definitely be looking. Um, I mean, that's a good question. There's just still so much more that we don't know than we do know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think anything having to do with members of Congress and their potential involvement in this mm. And, um, you know, connections between them and the White House. I think that has been, you know, woefully unexplored. And I would love to know more about that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, they really have skated by. uh, And those there's a lot of stories to be told there, I suspect. Josh Kavansky is an investigative reporter for Talking Points Memo, which you can find, of course, at TalkingPointsMemo.com. They've got uh, links currently on the front page to the uh, series on Ken Chesbro, the Chesbro docs, as they call them. You can also find Josh on the Twitters at Josh Kavensky. Uh, Josh, really great speaking with you here. And congratulations again on this uh, on this important uh, series, if nothing else, for history. Thanks, Brad. Really appreciate your time. Thank, Thank you, Josh. OK, we have got to get out. Yes, uh, boy, we do. That was, you know. I don't think people realize how close we came to losing it all. No, I don't think they do. And uh, I think we're going to be dealing with this for many, 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 many years. Oh, great. All right. For now, (laughs) we're getting out. Uh, Thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who... Hit the donate button when you're there or go straight to bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and site still known as Twitter, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there until we see you here again. Hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com/donate.